Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Peter Montgomery of People for the American Way, who examines effective ways to fight the Republican Party's culture war attacks on LGBTQ and trans youth, imposition of classroom censorship, and banning of books. Christina C., a co-founder of Extinction Rebellion in New York City, who discusses the guiding principles of the movement and demands on government and business to respond to the climate crisis. And Nora Benavides, Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at FreePress.net, who takes a critical look at billionaire Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter and the major failings of social media. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Dozens of Russian organizations were hacked after Vladimir Putin launched his invasion of Ukraine. Hackers obtained terabytes of data from dozens of government agencies, oil and gas companies, and financial firms. The Intercept reports that hacked material was collected and circulated by the group Distributed Denial of Secrets, which gained fame in 2020 for the release of 270 gigabytes of data from U.S. law enforcement in the midst of protests over the police murder of George Floyd. Through late April, the collective had published 6 million Russian documents and is now assisting journalists in reporting on the data leak. According to the report, many of the hackers appear to self-identify as part of the anonymous hacktivist movement. In early March, information was released from the Russian government agency responsible for monitoring, controlling, and censoring the Russian news media. The documents revealed that the agency had been monitoring the Internet since at least 2020 for what they labeled as anti-militarism. Despite the massive scale of these Russian data leaks, very few journalists have reported on them thus far. Since the war began, Russia has severely clamped down on its domestic media, introducing harsh penalties in prison for journalists who referred to the war in Ukraine instead of a special military operation. Russia has also blocked access to Twitter, Facebook, and international news sites. After the U.S. banned imports of Russian oil, Venezuela, with some of the world's largest oil reserves, now has an opportunity to regain access to U.S. refineries and consumers. Three top Biden administration officials met with Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro in March, a few days before the U.S. announced its ban on Russian oil. There is now anticipation of a thaw in U.S.-Venezuelan relations while U.S. oil service companies lobby to restart drilling in the oil-rich South American nation. The Economist magazine reports that even before the invasion of Ukraine, Venezuela was working to ramp up oil production and doubled its oil output over the last year. For now, Russia remains a close ally of Maduro. Since the U.S. imposed sanctions on Venezuelan oil in 2019 in a bid to overthrow Maduro's government, Moscow sold arms to Caracas and helped create a network to evade sanctions and sell Venezuelan oil at a deep discount. 
Since 2020, China has been the biggest consumer for Venezuelan crude. On April 14th, a diverse group of Venezuelan economists and civil society leaders wrote a letter to President Biden asking that U.S. sanctions be lifted and to allow Western oil companies to resume operations. The letter urged the administration and Congress to overcome domestic political pressures that they say have hindered the advance of negotiations with Maduro. During the COVID pandemic, it was easier for police investigative units to obtain no-knock warrants to enter homes unannounced, with the justification often being a search for illegal drugs. A recent investigation by the Washington Post found that police rely heavily on confidential informants, but experts said they can be unreliable, incentivized to trade questionable information for reduced sentences or other beneficial treatment. No-knock raids can easily turn into violent confrontations while finding few illicit drugs and with little accountability for police officers. One of the most well-known no-knock raids occurred in Louisville in 2020 when police officers killed 26-year-old Brianna Taylor inside her apartment while conducting a drug investigation of an ex-boyfriend. This February, Minneapolis police killed 22-year-old Amir Locke during a no-knock raid. Locke was not the target of the investigation and was killed while sleeping on a couch with his fully licensed gun. The Washington Post found that since 2015, police have carried out 21 no-knock raids in which 22 people, including one officer, were killed. A majority of those shot by police were black or Latino. A growing number of cities and states are now placing limits on no-knock raids. South Carolina Chief Justice Donald Beatty ordered a temporary ban on these raids, claiming that local magistrates often issued warrants without questioning police and do not fully understand the danger of no-knock warrants. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. When Donald Trump ran for president in 2015 and 2016, he made the demonization of immigrants and people of color the centerpiece of his successful campaign, exposing the deep racism and xenophobia within the GOP base. Responding to Trump's toxic rhetoric, many white supremacists across the country felt safe to publicly spew hate and threats of violence, targeting racial minorities and the LGBTQ community. Now, as the country approaches the 2022 midterm congressional election, the Republican Party has once again launched a repressive culture war. In states across the country, GOP governors and legislatures are passing laws to attack LGBTQ and trans rights, banning books, outlawing abortion, prohibiting the teaching of America's slave-era history, and racist policies. Many Republicans have also adopted QAnon tactics, to smear opponents as pedophiles and groomers. All this while the party imposes voter suppression laws to make it more difficult for communities of color and young people to vote. Your reporter spoke with Peter Montgomery, 
senior fellow with People for the American Way and Right Wing Watch, who outlines the very real dangers of the GOP culture war to democracy and effective ways for the public to fight back. There are historical roots to all of this. You know, we saw the religious right, you know, ran a campaign to take over school boards back in the 90s around the country. We've had textbook battles off and on over the years as they seek to control what can be taught in classrooms and what cannot be taught in classrooms. And so the current um, wave of censorship targeting both the teaching of honest history about race in this country and the teaching and availability of, of books uh, reflecting the lives of LGBTQ people, you know, they both have, have roots in um, the right wing. I do think Donald Trump's campaign really energized and electrified uh, elements of the far right that had been kind of staying in the shadows because they were not welcomed into public discourse. And Trump uh, has made it people think that it's okay for them to let their bigotry flags fly. And other politicians, seeing how that worked for Trump in terms of energizing his base, have picked it up and run with it. And it's really been appalling to see just how much of the Republican Party has not only fallen in line with Trump, but has really embraced his strategy for building power by demonizing opponents, by fear-mongering about you know, different groups of, uh, of people, by um, trying to convince parents that their children are uh, at risk from gay people, from uh, public schools, from teachers. It's really a, a broad attack, um, and it's a broad attack in the service of taking and holding political power. Peter, I've read some commentary that talks about the culture war aimed at uh, schools and classroom curriculum is in actuality an attack on public education with the goal of dismantling America's public education system. How would you weigh in on that question? Yes, I would agree with that completely. There is a very uh, long-running, well-funded campaign against public education in the United States. It's a pincher movement. In some ways, it's, it's from Christian right activists who uh, want to promote Christian schooling and homeschooling, and they want to divert tax dollars into those things. But it also comes from sort of the corporate and libertarian right that has a sort of principled opposition to public institutions generally, and to public schools in particular, and have sought to dismantle public education through vouchers and, and other means. And the fact is, they've tried all that for a long time, and they have made headway. But one thing that stands in the way is the fact that most Americans support public schools, the vast majority of American kids are still educated in public schools. And so in order to achieve their political objectives, the right has to so uh, mistrust. And that's what we're seeing now. That's what all this fear-mongering about LGBT issues in schools, all this fear-mongering about critical race theory in public schools. It's all about telling uh, parents that they can't trust public schools to take care of their kids, to educate their kids. It's all about sowing you know, suspicion toward public institutions so that they can try to build political momentum for further dismantling the idea of public education, for uh, diverting public education funds away from public schools and into private and religious schools, homeschooling, and the you know, right-wing for-profit groups that make a curriculum for homeschools. You see that Hillsdale College 
which is uh, acts as an intellectual point of the spear for the right, is now going to be opening 50 charter schools with its so-called patriotic education curriculum in Tennessee, funded by Tennessee taxpayers. And that is the kind of thing that uh, the anti-public education movement has been working toward for decades. What are some of the most effective ways to combat the disinformation that feeds this uh, culture war and damages public institutions and creates this distrust that you've described here tonight. It seems to me and many other people that the Democrats are avoiding the topic, and when they do respond, the response is quite tepid and not really working very well. There is a lot of sense of that, which is why people gravitate so strongly when they see examples of that. But the Michigan state legislator whose video went viral, where she just directly and powerfully took on some of the lies of the anti-LGBT movement. And people around the country were like, yes, that is what we need. And so I think that is what we need. You know, um, unfortunately, just putting out the facts is not enough. There's a lot of you know science about the fact that sometimes, you know, people who are totally committed to a worldview are not easily swayed by facts. So that's a big challenge. But I think putting the truth out there in a compelling way, encouraging people to ask questions of their friends and family members who have gone down these rabbit holes, but to to make a real commitment to putting out the truth, to exposing the lies, to hopefully holding up the lies um, to public scrutiny in a way that will convince people who are either in the middle or who have accepted some of those lies to start questioning what they're told. And I think that is a, a major undertaking for you know democratic leaders, for progressive activists and thinkers. And for average Americans who, you know, may have lost their parents to Fox News, you know, the way some people put it, I am not immune from having family members who live in the Q continuum. And it's a major, uh, it's a major challenge. That was Peter Montgomery, senior fellow with People for the American Way and Right Wing Watch. Learn more about groups fighting against the Republican Party's culture war attacks on public education and LGBTQ rights by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The Extinction Rebellion movement first emerged in London in 2018, when climate activists glued their hands to the doors of institutions they saw as exacerbating the climate crisis. The XR movement, as it's known, has since spread around the world. Organizing visually stunning and creative protests, Activists have participated in nonviolent civil disobedience, which allows everyday people's voices to be heard and is used when all other methods, such as petitioning and lobbying, fall on deaf ears. The group also offers emotional support in dealing with climate grief. From April 13th through the 23rd, Extinction Rebellion's New York City chapter organized their spring uprising, which included marches, performances and protests blocking streets, and calling out the roles played by the media, Wall Street, and the military-industrial complex in furthering climate chaos. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhus, who participated in two days of the actions in New York, spoke with Christina C., who was a co-founder of Extinction Rebellion in New York City in 2018. Here she describes the group's founding principles, which differ somewhat from those in the U.K., and explains where Extinction Rebellion fits in the broader climate movement. 
I would say it's the demands that are slightly different here. And it's really only that we added a fourth demand in the U.S. that acknowledges climate justice issues and wording around a just transition. You know, we, especially in New York City, really do focus on both the ecological side of it and the um, historically marginalized communities who've been systemically screwed over by many aspects. So that was basically the biggest thing that we added to XR in the U.S. But I would say that, you know, a lot of it did translate well, and it was very thought out and very strategic what they designed in the U.K. And just to run through the demands, the first demand is to tell the truth. So really, what we were seeing three and four years ago, no one was using the words climate emergency, climate crisis, ecological crisis. So part of the goal was to shift into this communication of the urgency of the situation, which, you know, I think really has happened. We have been seeing much more different words and phrases used around it. Obviously not as much as we need, but the second demand is getting to net zero by 2025, which everyone says, oh my God, there's no way we can do that. But actually what the science is saying is that we actually do need to do that. Um, And that's becoming clearer and clearer every day with every report that comes out that 2050 is basically, it's obscene of a, of a year to think about um, related to all of these issues that are already happening. The third demand is around citizens' assemblies. And this is something that has been used in Europe. There's been climate assemblies that have happened in the UK, in France, in Belgium. You know, this is a way where people's voices are heard. And it also deals with political deadlock. And I think we absolutely have that issue in this country um, where we cannot pass any legislation, let alone climate and ecological emergency policy without, you know, varied interest between lobbyists and elected officials and corporations all having their say where it really feels like everyday people are being left out of the conversation, even though they want these things to, to move forward. And then the fourth demand is around climate and ecological justice. And when we talk about just transition, that means everything from making it much safer, you know, in our own neighborhoods from pollution and all of these other issues. But also when we talk about what does it mean for oil workers who, if if we're transitioning off of oil, they also need to be acknowledged. And that needs to be thought through as well, whether that's retraining or those types of things. Um, And that's where a citizen's assembly would be helpful in coming through and discussing those issues. The other thing I wanted to ask about is the the change in the language, you know, to to talk about emergency and crisis and catastrophe and chaos. Those are words that are being used much more now and and they're all true. But I, I actually just watched a webinar with a guy who's head of Project Drawdown Are you familiar with that? Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, 100 ideas that could reduce greenhouse gas emissions and keep the planet safe for life. And his view is not to talk about emergency and chaos and catastrophe and crisis, but to talk about opportunities and solutions in such a way that people feel empowered and positive and hopeful rather than maybe shutting people down. And I just like your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it's a balance between the two, because we don't want to think that we have no power to do anything. But I think we also need to be realistic. And the realistic part is absolutely key, right? 
Um, and that's the part that keeps getting pushed back by media and corporations and people who have varied interests in this. And so one key part of XR is around climate grief, right? So there's a lot of people who come into XR feeling like despair or feeling like something's happening in the world and they may may or may not be able to put their finger on it. But that's a key aspect um, we feel about being able to do these things and talk about these things in a realistic manner. That was Christina C., a co-founder of Extinction Rebellion in New York City. Learn more about the Extinction Rebellion movement by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On April 25th, Twitter's board of directors unanimously accepted billionaire Elon Musk's offer to purchase the social media platform for $44 billion, effectively buying out the company's shareholders and taking the corporation private. Many of Twitter's 330 million regular users expressed concern about how Musk would change the platform. Once the deal is finalized and Musk takes over Twitter, the company will be controlled by the world's richest person who's been a critic of the platform while using it in legally questionable ways with sensitive posts about his Tesla car company's stock. Musk calls himself a free speech absolutist and says he wants to operate Twitter as a politically neutral town square. But while Musk says he opposes censorship, critics are concerned that he'll open the floodgates of hate speech, bullying, and threats while silencing views he disagrees with, given that he's often blocked critics from his personal account. Your reporter spoke with Nora Benavides, Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at FreePress.net, who takes a critical look at Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter and talks about what a coalition of groups are doing to address the major failings of social media. Well, I hold two different feelings. You know, the first is just uh, the pragmatist in me that The deal isn't done. And Musk has a great track record of not doing what he says he'll do, Uh, whether it is his promise that self-driving cars will come out in six months or any number of other promises that he has made over his career. Uh, You know, he wanted to be called the techno king for Tesla. Uh, He has a certain flair for the dramatic and his taking up so much oxygen has really meant that we get to focus on little else. But the other part of me, you know, is very worried. Um, I think that, you know, any user on Twitter, anyone who thinks about using the internet and social media as a gateway to connect has no promise from Musk that he will actually be an accountable steward for the platform. He has a history of shutting people down, uh, particularly when he doesn't like what they say. And so his new sort of mantra that he wants to make Twitter a free speech platform rings very hollow. You know, he has shut down people at Tesla on earnings phone calls when he finds them boring, despite they're actually meeting capital requirements. 
he disparages and uh, rallies his bullies online to attack reporters when they critique him. And he frankly just doesn't adhere to the values of an open square. Musk touts himself to be a free speech absolutist. So there's fears. Twitter will once again be used as a platform to spread dangerous disinformation and cause for violence. And I wonder how you view what Musk can do, given the fact that there are certain constraints, including the European Union and the United Kingdom's uh, vow that they will maintain their laws, that social media must comply with content moderation that, at least rhetorically, Elon Musk seems to reject. You know, the EU has been advancing policies of late uh, to push for stronger interventions from government to solve the problems we know are occurring on social media platforms. That includes what you've mentioned, dangerous disinformation, hate online, calls for violence and extremism. There's a pretty long list of these harms that have offline consequences. I would frankly say that Twitter has these issues with or without Musk. Well, Nora, tell our listeners about the campaign launched by the uh, Change the Terms Coalition. And the title of the campaign is Fix the Feed. Fix the Feed, yeah. Uh, We are a group of over 60 civil rights organizations, tech justice, consumer advocacy organizations all over the country. And we are working to pressure social media companies to do better. You know, if we take a step back this 2022 year, we are going to see not just the U.S. midterms. We're going to see 36 determinative elections around the world that will shape a variety of nations. And frankly, most of us use social media as our gateway to information about everything, about our neighbors, about our neighborhood about democracy, about issues. And so we feel like this is such a powerful moment to say, you are the reason that people turn to certain information. Social media companies do better. And we're calling on companies to do three things. One is fix their algorithms to stop promoting the worst stuff. Two is to protect people equally around the world, not just anecdotally make sure that in the U.S. midterm election there is a you know, brief moment or month of protection. But no matter what language you speak, you should be able to have the same kind of moderation that someone in English has. And then finally, we're saying show us the receipts. Be more transparent. Let us, researchers and experts and civil society, understand how your companies are moderating, what your business models are. Open up what we call the black box. And so together, all of this is us saying, you know what? You need to fix your feed. Do better. Step up. This is a moment where the entire world's democracies hang in the balance. That was Nora Benavides. Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at freepress.net. Learn more about the Change the Terms Coalition and their Fix the Feed campaign by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, KKFI in Kansas City, Missouri, WHYR in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.